Excellent. So we were in Texas for a week and did some teaching with the leadership of a small church in a town called Brenham. And they had never, a lot of them, most of them in that church had never experienced God's communication to them directly. And uh, so we talked about that a little bit, but didn't get a chance to try it. But I invited them to come to the larger church in Conroe, which is a suburb of uh, Houston, on a Sunday night where we were going to experiment with these things and learn to recognize God's communications. So we did it, and they paired up with people they didn't know, the little church, the big church, an hour and a half away. So they were strangers to one another. And this one guy from the small church never experienced anything like this. He was in leadership. But we waited on the Lord. We waited on the Lord for mental images and uh, unbidden thoughts and scriptures and things. And when we did the reality check, which is always a good thing to do, find out whether anyone really did hear the Lord for somebody else. And two guys came up. And the first guy said, I had a as soon as we started to pray, I saw in my mind's eye a young boy standing in a, walking through a field of wheat. The wheat was very high. And he was touching the wheat with his hands. And as he was doing that, God was speaking to him. And he was having an encounter with God, this young boy. And I said, well, what did that mean to you, to the other guy? And he said, when I was a child, I walked out into the fields and I was asking God about my life, and God was telling me he'd made me for evangelism. And he said, I let it go, and just sort of lost sight of that ministry. He said, but when he shared it, he was in tears at this point. He was just completely overwhelmed. He said, when he showed me that picture, he said, God spoke to me over again, basically said, it's not too late. You can, you can do it again. You can pick it up where we left off. So we had words like that that were so accurate. And it was just a ream of them coming one after another. So here's a bunch of people that never operated in hearing the Holy Spirit speak, hearing God speak. And now they're able to do that, or many of them are able to do that. So it was wonderful. Shelley had, I think, 15 counseling sessions in three days, which I think is ridiculous. It... She paid the price physically, but um, a lot of people were really, really blessed. And the couple we were staying with just opened a business. They put their life savings into a business, and uh, it was struggling. And we said, um, well, we're going to start praying for your business. And two days ago, she texted and said, we just had the best night since our grand opening. She said it was absolutely incredible. And this morning I texted her and said, what was last night like? And she said, the same. She said, things are falling into place with the staff and everything else. She said, this is just amazing. So dare to bless one another's business. Dare to bless one another's lives and their families. Let's not stop doing it. So it was a good trip. But... uh, made me miss you guys a lot. <laughs> I really love being with you guys. The worship this morning was absurd. I just found my I just cried through most of it and the Lord just kept showing me my sin, which was quite gracious cuz I needed to see it. But it, I was overwhelmed with his love. 
just that you love me anyway, that you're patient with me is ridiculous. It makes no sense to me. His love is absurd. It's irrational. It's unwise. It's nuts. It's reckless. I just, I think he's irresponsible in his love. He should be more discerning with who he chooses to love, aren't we? Aren't we more discerning about who we choose to love? He's not. But he's accepted me, and I get to talk to you. So I, this, this, this um, message is from the book of Philemon. You haven't heard one from the book of Philemon. Just, I think it's the shortest book in the Bible, that and Jude. Um, it's only one page in my Bible. It's just one little story. Philemon. I'm dedicating this uh, message to Phil Williams because it's what would result if Phil ate a lemon. It would be Philemon. That's one of the dumbest things I've ever said. But I told Phil I was going to dedicate a message to him. So this is for you, Phil the Lemon. (laughs) Okay, and for all of you online, welcome. Hope you get something out of this. Now, most of the time when we look at uh, Philemon, it's a story about love and it's a story about acceptance of uh, a slave, about the redemption of his life through Paul's efforts. And that's what we usually focus on, but I'm not going to focus on that. That's tangential. I think there's something else going on in this book that is really, really interesting. And I want to focus on that. And it's leading like Paul. This is a book about leadership. And I, and, and I know it doesn't appear at first to be a, a story of leadership, but it is a story of leadership. So I'm going to set the stage for this. And we're going to see the leadership principles that come out of this story. First, let's look at Paul. Jesus established his church, and Paul built on it. Paul was the reason you're sitting here today. You need to understand that. Jesus is the reason why you're saved. Paul is the reason why you're sitting here today. Because we don't have our Jewish roots, ethnically, even spiritually. We're not of the Jewish people. We're the Gentiles. We became Christians because Paul took the message to the Gentile church. Had he not done what he did, Christianity would be a little sect of Judaism, probably a blip in history. Paul was instrumental to building the church. Now, what, what I want you to know is that when it comes to leadership, Paul embraced the very same leadership model that Jesus did. And this is a servant leadership. It's a leadership through influence, not through position. Positional authority says, I'm the boss. I have a right to be the boss. I've been commissioned by God to be the boss. And because I'm the boss, this is how you will live. It's a top-down command structure based on position. Paul had every right to lead that way, as did Jesus. Neither of them did. They chose an entirely different model. But Paul has every right to lead by positional authority. He's delegated by God to take the message of Jesus and salvation to the Gentiles. He planted every single one of the churches that we spring out of. He was the spiritual father to all of these people. He was the spiritual authority. He had every right. Through his theology, Christianity becomes defined by grace. 
through his theology, Christianity is a religion of love and forgiveness. Unearned love and forgiveness. And because of him, Christianity is separated from every other world religion. Judaism and every other world religion. Because none of the other ones are based on grace. They're based on measure up, do more, try harder. Maybe you're going to find acceptance in God. Maybe you're going to get to heaven. You don't ever really know. You don't have what we call eternal security. You don't know where you're going to end up, so you live in a state of fear. That's the essence of religion. But that's not our faith. Paul is in a class by himself. He is at the top of the heap. Yet through all of his accomplishments and his amazing spiritual experiences, and he had some incredible spiritual experiences, he considers them all, and he said, I consider them all garbage compared to simply knowing Jesus. Isn't that cool? He sees himself through the eyes of humility always, and he sees himself as the least of God's apostles. And yet, in significance, he's the most significant of God's apostles because of what God did through him. And he admits all of his accomplishments and all of his reasons to boast, but instead he chooses to boast about what does Paul choose to boast about? For those of you that have ever read the Bible, this should come. He he boasts about his weakness. What kind of leader do you know gets up and boasts about his weakness? Aren't we supposed to look strong in front of people all the time? Aren't we supposed to be invincible? Aren't we supposed to be always right? Why Why would we ever admit our weaknesses? Because he gets grace. He's not standing there saying what he's saying because he's wonderful. He's standing there saying what he's saying because he's broken and God fixed him and healed him. So his brokenness is a sign of God's goodness. It's not principally a sign of Paul's weakness. It's principally a sign of God's goodness. So he boasts and he welcomes his weakness. He welcomes, quote, a thorn in his flesh because it helps to keep him humble. When was the last time you thanked God for a character flaw within your own self that causes you to call out to God repeatedly for help because you're such a wreck. But that's what what we're supposed to be able to do. God, I'm so glad I'm such a wreck because when I'm such a wreck, I realize how much I need you. And if I didn't realize how much I need you, I wouldn't bother with you because it's my nature to be utterly independent. So God, thank you for my brokenness. It's the window through which I cry out to you. It's the road I walk on to get to you. I'm not making this up. During the worship, all I can think about is my growing impatience as I age and how impatient I am with the people I'm supposed to love. I mean, I just cried. And now I'm going to get up and talk to these people? What right do I have to do that? I'm a mess. Oh, the overwhelming, reckless, absurd, crazy love of God. The more you see your weakness, the more you end up loving Him because He's the only answer to your weakness and you can't fix yourself. And if you were able to fix yourself ever, you'd end up a perfect Pharisee. It would be biblical, but it wouldn't be good biblical. 
He's a servant leader. And his humility and his brokenness leads to influence in people's lives. People followed him because he was broken. They followed him because he was honest and transparent. They followed him because he understood grace, because he was experiencing it his, himself, not as a theory or a theology, but as a fact. God loves me and it makes no sense. Isn't God amazing? He has every right to lead by command. He's the founder of the church, but he chooses not to. I went through, this is a part of a chapter of my book called The Boss is Dead, which is about leadership through influence, not positional authority. And as part of my research, I went through every book of Paul, every word, every sentence to find the words he uses when he's leading people. How does he choose to lead? It was always by means of persuasion. He didn't tell people what to do. He tried to persuade them. He led through the gift of teaching. He does it with a heart of love for the people he's leading. And the words he uses most are urge, appeal, plead, and beg. These are not terms of command. Many times he appealed on the basis of his love for the people. He would tell them how much he loved them. And then he would tell them what was wise and what was good and what they could do to please God. He spoke as a father often. He had the heart of a father. And he always avoided leading through command and force. Now Philemon provides the best story that illustrates this kind of leadership. And it's really, really interesting. So let's do the backstory. What do we know? Philemon was a Christian who owned a slave named Onesimus. From what we can deduct from the letter, we're not entirely sure, but it appears that Onesimus, the slave, has stolen from his master Philemon, and he's run away to protect himself. Because in Roman law, at this time, if a slave disobeyed you, you could kill him. In fact, you should kill him. You should just kill him and be, be done with it. So Onesimus has run away, and he's come to another city where Paul is. And he stumbles into Paul's connect group, his little house church. And while he's there, he becomes a Christian. And Paul accepts Onesimus as a spiritual son and brother. Now, you've got to understand how significant this is. In this culture, slaves were considered personal property. They had no human rights. They had no human dignity. They had no independence. They were simply the possession of somebody else. They had no personhood. And Paul accepts him as my spiritual son and my brother. And he gives him a place to stand in dignity. And now Paul is sending a letter to his master... Philemon saying, I want you to have mercy on him. And I'm pleading for his life. I don't want you to kill him. Because he's now my spiritual brother. That's shocking. 
You see, Paul's statement there and this decision is what we would call prophetic in that it's speaking to an evil in the culture that needs to be addressed. And he's stretching out to do that. He's risking himself to speak the truth to somebody to save the life of a worthless person who has no personhood. But he does now because God's given it to him. Now this isn't just an isolated example of how Paul responds to slavery. This is one example. But there's another example that, 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 is, that is really, really interesting, but you don't tend to see it unless you read the text very, very carefully. But in Romans 16, verse 23, Paul's tying up the entire book of Romans to the church in Rome, and it's a long, long letter. And at the end, interestingly, usually you have the greetings at the beginning, but he puts all of his greetings at the end. So he's greeting house churches and leaders of house churches, and he's greeting his friends and people that he's come to know in Rome. And in one place, he says this. He's addressing Gaius. He says, Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, he sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. What you need to know that makes this particularly interesting is Quartus is not a name. This is not a man's name. This is a number. It's the number four. And in the Roman culture at the time, when you owned slaves and you had multiple slaves, you named them by the number. Yes. There was no humanity involved. You don't have a name. You're a number. You know how we feel when, the, when, when we get the dumb letter from the government and we feel like we're nothing but a number? These guys were nothing but numbers. Quartus was the number four. He was the fourth slave in the household. And you've got to understand... Paul's addressing him as an equal and he's speaking to his relationship with him and he's greeting him. And what's really interesting, come on, listen to this. This is huge. What's really interesting is that Cordus is in the small group that Eurastus, the city administrator, is in. Do you understand that their faith has transcended everything? Their faith has transcended race. It's transcended socioeconomic background. It's transcended education. It has transcended everything. Any conviction going on here right now? Because there should be. Paul treated Erastus and Cordus as spiritual equals and as brothers. And this transcends social standing, education, wealth, gender, politics, and race. Nothing separates these people in Jesus. Our connection to the Lord must transcend every human value and ism. It must transcend our politics, our education, our socioeconomic background, and our race. We have to stand for this. Now back to Philemon and the letter. After reminding 
Philemon, and he's very gracious in how he writes this, and he's very careful, and he's even humorous. You're going to see in a minute. He's, he's kind of softening Philemon up with, with some, some humor. After rem- reminding Philemon of Paul's thanksgiving for his friendship and Paul's genuine love for him, he goes on to state his case, and this is what he says. Now look at this. Therefore, in Christ, in other words, in my position with God, where, God, where Jesus has placed me in this hierarchy, where he has put me in the, in the Gentile church, I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. I have the right to, to rule here. I am your apostle. I am your spiritual father. I'm the guy that planted your church. Now, I have the right to tell you what you should do. Yet, I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul. I like this. See, I don't know about you, but I'm using my age now as a weapon. I'm telling people how old I am so they should forgive my crankiness and my forgetfulness. And, and, you know, Mary knows. I mean, I'm doing it all the time. I'm getting, I'm getting mileage. I'm getting mileage out of my age, people. I have a right. I'm old. Now I can use it as leverage, okay? And Paul's doing exactly the same thing with a little touch of humor. He says, it, it's none other than Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I command you, no, oh, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus the slave, who became my son while I myself was in chains. There's some empathy. While I myself was in chains. So I sort of know what it's like. Not as bad, but I sort of know what it's like. Now this is a super clear illustration of Paul saying no to his positional authority. He admits he has it, but he refuses to use it. He comes in the name of love and he comes as an old man. He's adding a a tone of lightness to a life and death situation. And he's urging and appealing and persuading and coming in love in the hopes that Philemon will change his mind about Onesimus. And he goes on and he says, I'm sending him who is my very heart. Paul's saying, I really love him. He's my brother. He's like a spiritual son to me. I'm sending him back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. I'd really like to keep him here. He's precious to me, but I know he's yours. And you need to receive him back. And you need to forgive him. And you need not to kill him. And he's your brother. Now listen to this. But I did not want to do anything without your consent. So that... Any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Why is this so significant? I don't know about your relationship with God, but I know about mine. I have searched my memory 
when I was writing this book, I searched my memory and said, okay, Lord, when was the last time you told me to do something because you're God and I'm not? And I racked my brain to find an instance where God led me through positional authority and I could not find one. And then it got under my skin. And I thought, maybe that's just me because I'm a bit of a baby and maybe he's very gentle with me because I've got a soft disposition and a nervous wreck. Maybe that's it. So I went to, I was teaching in San Francisco at a church up there and we had a leadership meeting with all of their leaders and there was quite a few people in the room. And I said, just do me a favor. I just want to ask you a question right now. When was the last time in your memory that God led you through command? Like, do this because I said so. And we all waited and they thought not one of them could come up with once. I'm starting to realize there's a pattern here. This is, God leads through love and persuasion. And often through saying, okay, I've warned you about this. It's a really dumb thing to do but you're going to do it anyway. And I want you to be free. I want your heart to be free. I don't want to control you. So go ahead and screw up. And when you're done and feeling really miserable, come back to me and I'll heal your awi. Well, that's kind of how he leads. He, he lets us make our mistakes. And he doesn't go, I told you so. You're such an idiot. I told you so. He just waits for us to screw up and then he welcomes us back and cuddles us and, and forgives us and heals us and puts us back on track. That's how he deals with our mess. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that just shocking? Of all the guys that deserves, he's right all the time, you know. He should be saying, I told you so, pretty much every three or four seconds in your life. And he never does that. He just wants us to learn from our mistakes. He's not out to bully us. He doesn't lead, God does not lead by command to do so denies us the benefit of freely giving our obedience. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. You see, God rarely leads by command because to do so denies us the benefit of freely giving our obedience. Leading by command results in the imposition of a stronger will over a weaker one. It denies the opportunity for moral and spiritual growth in the one being led. God is not in the behavior modification business. He is in the heart transformation business. God is far more interested in the state of your heart than the state of your obedience. He's not out to get you to do stuff. He's changing you to where you want to do stuff. He works from the inside out, not the outside in. He's relational, not transactional. Does that make sense? He's more interested in who you are becoming than simply modifying your behavior. Because he knows if he can touch your heart and change your heart, your behavior will follow suit. 
But if you if he tries to change your behavior and can't get to your heart, you'll only obey while he's in the room watching. I mean, you have your three-year-old and you just cooked the best batch of chocolate chip cookies the little rascal's ever smelled. And you say to Tommy, don't touch the cookies. He's just craving to get his hands on those cookies. And you say, don't touch the cookies. While you're in the room, Tommy's not going to touch the cookies. But the minute you leave, the cookies are gone. Because Tommy's heart has not been changed. His behavior's only been controlled while the threat of your presence is there. God's presence is never a threat. God's presence is a comfort. When the heart changes, the behavior will follow. I might have left you with the idea that Paul... rejected his positional authority. He didn't. He said in 2 Corinthians 13.10, he said, I have the authority. But he makes it clear that he's not going to use it. Not going to use it harshly. All right, here's the question. If this is how Paul led, and this is how Jesus led, and this is how God leads us, how can we lead any differently with one another? And this applies not just to business, where it applies. It doesn't just apply to church, how we lead our people. It applies to your marriage, your friendships, your associations at work, your neighbors, the person at the store. It applies to every single relationship in your life. I can't think of anything else to say. (laughs) So I want to do something that came to me in pre-service prayer. It came to me and then it came to me again in worship. And I think it would be just a wonderful thing to do before we go. And I'm going to force you to do it. I urge you, I urge you to take part, but you don't have to. And if your heart's not in it, don't do it. Oh, yeah, I have this fear. I want to tell you. I have this vision that appears to me frequently. I get to heaven. And I'm with you guys. There's a bunch of us. And we're going to get judged for our work. We're going to get judged and rewarded for what we've done for God, right? And I'm standing there, and a bunch of you guys are with me, and I'll just pick an illustration. Uh, Adrena, you work in the children's ministry. Come on up here, would you please? The more you can come to. It's just a little illustration. Okay, you're Adrena, and your works are about to be judged. And you're Jesus. 
because I know you. Like, obviously, obviously, you're kind of a God figure in Adrena's life, so you might as well be like God figure now. Okay, so you're God, and uh, you say, uh, I see that you, you worked a long time in the children's ministry. You two are so cute. Stop being cute and get on with the illustration. Did you work it? And, and I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm Mia. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. Now you ask her, why did you do that? Now she points to me and says, he made me do it. And you say, why did you do that? Well, I thought I was doing it for you. And you say, who gets the reward? Does she get the reward? Because you made her do it. Because I made her do it. I'm the pastor that cajoled and pushed and threatened and guilted and manipulated to get her to do good things. That's not so good, is it? This is not a good situation. Okay, you can go now. <laughs> Of what value is a good work if it did not come from your heart? Of what value is a good work if it did not come from your heart? If it was extorted or threatened or manipulated or cajoled, whatever, it's not a good work. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do no good thing. Which means good things have to come from him through us. Not because he forced us, but because he's living inside of us and it's changing us. His presence is changing us. He's transforming our hearts. He's not bending our wills. Okay? All right. Let's do this. I want to try something. How do you feel about, <laughs> and you don't have to, how do you feel about taking a minute to look around the room and see something? And let's just look around and see if there's somebody you've got a sense you'd like to give a word to. And you don't have to have received the word, like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what I'm going to say to Phil. You, you just have a sense that maybe you might have something for somebody in the room. Why don't you look around and see if there's anybody that you feel like I should give a word to. And we'll go guys with guys and girls with girls. Okay? Look around and see if you got somebody. Now go to that person. Go to that person. Oh, okay, go ahead. Okay, you guys paired up? Get some people paired up? See if you can find somebody? 
All right, let's ask the Lord to speak to us. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. Give us encouraging words. Give us prophetic words, images, whatever you want to do for one another so that we end up knowing you better. Holy Spirit, come and speak through us and to us. Now wait on the Lord and just see what comes to you. Okay. Deliver the message. Whatever you... You don't have to... We're not judging whether it's accurate or not at this point. Just deliver the message and let's see what happens. Stephanie, give her a hug. If you see somebody you'd like to pray for, maybe you don't have a specific word for, but you'd like to pray for somebody, go and do that.
Okay, let's just do a quick little reality check. Okay, you guys want to do a quick, quick little check on this? Girls? 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 We're going to do a quick reality check. If someone gave you a word that encouraged you, or you felt was from the Lord, or a prayer that was, was encouraging, put your hand up. Great. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Okay, you're done. Fourth of July tomorrow, Phil, Phil Lemon.